Ladies and gentlemen, it is I, yet again, your queen, the queen mother, the real queen. That's a fact. She doesn't like to accept that fact, but I was the real queen because I had a king. She's just a queen with a prince. Who gives a shit about that? But that's not why I'm here. I'm here to reintroduce you to the fellas. They're back. And they're doing the thing that I love most, which is talking about British films. So join us today. And me, the queen mother. I'll be sitting silently in the background watching the boys talk as they discuss a fine film made by the British public with British steel and British ingenuity. Thank you and welcome to For Screen and Country. Good day. Thank you, Your Majesty. It's always appreciated to have you on this podcast. It's an honor, really. Jason, can I ask one question, though? I mean, you can ask me anything, Red. Why was she completely naked from the waist down? Well, that's the thing. The the dead have no shame. Mm-hmm. 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 That's just that's a piece of wisdom that I've My favorite up. my favorite Jim Jarmusch indie film, yes. <laughs> the Dead Have No Shame. That's actually a good name for a movie, I think. Or it would be a good name for like a kind of a gothy punk band. The Dead Have No Shame. They walk around naked. There we go. First hit. <laughs> I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. And this is a podcast called For Screen and Country. And Jason, we are back. We are back at it. We are back to the list. We are, I believe this is our 55th movie on the list Damn. that we've talked about. Yeah. We're almost at our next uh, little break here uh, to, to uh, rank them so far. Although so, total movies we've watched has got to be, what, like 75 at this point with all the Brit picks and uh, and uh, now for something completely similar? Oh, at least. Yeah. Yeah, we're definitely we're definitely uh, flirting with that 100 episode. But, uh, you know, they're they're off, oh, off brand off brands. Yeah, exactly. We <laughs> n- numbers don't concern us. It's the films that concern us and the numbers they are on the list. Correct. Those are the only numbers that concern us. Among the numbers that concern us are the numbers on the list. <laughs> Thanks for giving me seven variations of that. <laughs> You've not watched enough Monty Python. You get to see the uh, the Spanish Inquisition sketch. Come on. Oh, I'm only I'm only familiar with the the most like well known catchphrase from that sketch. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> no, enter stage left, John Cleese. Come on. Oh uh, well, yeah, that's a fun part too. I'm only familiar with the stage directions of the of the sketch. All the red. You went through the Monty Python scripts and just gonna glance at all the stage directions. It's like, yeah, oh, I'm like I'm like Lord Michaels at a at a Monday afternoon table read. <laughs> <laughs> I may have the day wrong. Sorry, my SNL nerddom just attacked me. Maybe Tuesday. I believe it's Tuesday. Tuesday. For me, it was a Tuesday. And if you didn't think we would reference that movie, then you haven't listened to this podcast before. Uh, but Jason, we're talking about number 89 on the BFI Top 100. It's a little film called Fires Were Started. And when I say little film, I do mean technically a little film because it is 64 minutes long. Perfect. <laughs> Every film should be 64 minutes. It would be great, wouldn't it? You could cram you everything in 64 minutes. Oh my God, Peter Jackson would have a heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just see the fast-paced 64-minute cut of uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Oh, shit. <laughs> All three movies? That's right. We've got so it into each, one big long music video. Each movie has to be like 21 and a half minutes long. Yep, that's the challenge. Oh my god. Um, well, this is so fires were started. Number 89. This movie was released in 1943. Good year um, for movies. Yeah, I, I mean, right in the midst in the midst of World War II, still going on. Absolutely. It's um, good the theater and hope it didn't get bombed. Yeah, you you crossed your fingers and crossed your legs and put put. Kissed two of your fingers and held them up to the sky. 
and t- just think of the think of the king. That's all you could do. Yeah, King Vador. <laughs> oh right? That's who you're talking yeah. about? Yeah, yeah, okay. that's the guy. Um, but this movie is directed by Humphrey Jennings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it stars a bunch of real firefighters. Yeah. And I'll just read some of their names because, I mean, they're all real firefighters, so I think we should lend a little bit of uh, uh, respect to their names. But we have William Sansom, who actually wrote a book on the behind the scenes of this uh, movie, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, George Gravitt, Philip Wilson Dixon, Fred Griffiths, Johnny Houghton, just to name a few. Uh, it's a pretty big cast, and none of, like I said, none of these people are actors. They they really went the Clint Eastwood 1517 to Paris route here. Uh, by getting real firefighters to play real firefighters. Yeah, and they they do an acceptable job, but uh, they they're not really given much heavy lifting beyond uh, being firefighters. So that's you know that's pretty cool. I think that's what I appreciate about this movie because I mean yeah. I'm I might mention this other movie a lot, and I already mentioned it once, but. I don't know if you've seen Clint Eastwood's uh, 1517 to Paris film. No, I've not, I've not seen it, but I'm familiar with the the concept that he got the guys that were involved in that uh, incident and made a movie with them, which playing you know, themselves. Is a problem. Yeah, playing themselves, but that's a problem because they're not actors. And, you know, they, they probably did their best, but, you know, well, not everybody's an actor. Here's the thing, too. Like, it, it, this movie, you could say, like, like you said, they're playing firefighters. They're not trained actors, but they're doing uh, some stuff – they're doing some easier stuff. Like he's not making them go above and beyond and doing some like fucking Marlon Brando shit. No. In the fifteen seventeen to Paris, I think the one of the fatal flaws of that movie, besides the fact that the actual incident is the last ten minutes of the movie, mm-hmm. um, is that Clint Eastwood has them all acting like in scenes that normal actors would probably struggle with, yeah. <laughs> or yeah. actual yeah. actors, I should say. Yeah, and and whereas this movie is very specifically about these firefighters doing their job, and most of the movie, outside of you know the, the first few minutes of it, like, like the first ten or twenty minutes of this thing, I guess a third of it really at that point, but like most of this movie is them fighting a fire, so they're just doing their job at that point. They're using the equipment, they're fighting the fire in the method that they would do it, and everybody is doing the things that they would have done during this particular period. So. And, uh, and and Jason, I was going to say, can you describe the plot? But you basically just did. Yeah, these guys uh, – This so this movie is set in the uh, winter and, and spring of 1940, 1941, and this is during the Blitz. So this is a period where England was bombed for like 50 straight nights um, by the German Luftwaffe. Uh, you know, so there was constant fires and buildings being destroyed, and the men uh, and women of the auxiliary fire service had to deal with that. And this kind of docudrama—it's not, you know, it's not a documentary because this isn't a real fire they're fighting, but it is a recreation of the uh, stuff the auxiliary fire service dealt with in uh, in that winter. Now, by this point, when the movie is actually made and and it's noted in the beginning of the movie i think that the uh, auxiliary fire service was rolled into like kind of a national fire service at that yeah. point. but uh, this movie th- this documentary or docudrama as it were were was made to kind of memorize or memorialize the afs and and what it did for britain and because you know when we think of world war ii we often think of the troops on the front lines the pilots in the skies the sailors on the seas but we don't as often give enough credit on the home front to the people that were dealing with that stuff and and the firefighters in london were dealing with a massive fucking job because they were out there every single night putting out fires started up by german bombers with and- gasoline <laughs> well maybe a couple of them did but uh, they wouldn't last it long they didn't take that but yeah, it, so so that's why it's interesting actually in this movie because we know this movie's filmed during the war. Like they're using actual bombed out and burned out buildings to set fires in so that they can film them putting them out, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 pretty wild. The the way this movie is filmed, uh it's real convincing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think going back to the use of non actors, um, I think that helps because they go they, – you, you may have – now, you may have people in a Clint Eastwood film playing themselves that don't know how to hold their arms when they walk. That's a real thing. <laughs> they they really look uncomfortable about where to put their arms. 
Again, um, but they're not actors. They don't they don't have the training. It's 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 hard to just say to someone like it, it, it's easy to say like oh just be yourself. But if you're not used to being on screen, yeah, what the fuck? You don't know what the fuck you're doing. I mean, I think you can <laughs> contribute that to. I don't think Clint Eastwood is the best director for actors, honestly. Well, we'll certainly not that. for not certainly he's not the best director for non actors. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't give a whole lot of direction from what I understand. And so he needs, um, he needs those strong actors to work with them that'll just do their thing. Yeah. Oh so, man, he should work with Shatner. I'd God. love to see that movie. <laughs> They'll just remake Richard Jewell, but with William Shatner. Please, please do it. I want to see it. Um, but like, yeah. So in in that movie, like, obviously, like, like I said, the actors have a hard time, like, even knowing where to put their arms. But in this in this movie, a lot of it is firefighter, just kind of, you know their day-to-day life and what they would normally do and how they would talk and their lingo. And they don't dumb it down for anyone. I think I kind of really appreciated that. Yes. That they, they make it as accurate as possible. Mm. Um, even though you could argue that this, I mean, not for, I don't think it has a negative connotation, but you could argue that this is like a propaganda film. No, 100% is a propaganda film, uh, uh, but that doesn't make it invalid. I mean, hey, we could talk about Triumph of the Will all day and, and how and, and we won't filmmaking, but also it is a propaganda film for a terrible, terrible regime. Now, this thankfully is a propaganda film for firefighters uh, in a regime that we are friends with. So, so, so are you are you making the hot take right now? That the National Fire Service was a better regime than the Nazi Party of Germany? I would be willing to state that unequivocally. Wow. To the world. Wow. Yeah. There if, it if, is. It, if the Auxiliary Fire Service had have run Germany, we wouldn't have had any problems. <laughs> no, if the Auxiliary fires, Fire Service had run Germany, they would have had to change it to the National Fire Service. Then we would have been fine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, so this is a hot take from Jason. Please don't, please don't add us. Yeah, don't um, add. But yeah, no, I think it's really, it's interesting because, like I said, there's a lot of like you know very. Uh, I do have a clip here uh, of some of the lingo that they kind of go back and forth with, and this is actually not the firefighters, but this is the the ladies, the operators, um, that are that are you know forwarding messages to each other too during all this craziness. And let's just listen to it because it's very like mechanical, and. It's very just, I guess, I don't know, matter of fact. Yeah. Anyway, let's just take a listen. Rice station. Two heavy units and two TPs. Thank you. Two heavies, two TPs, sub. Control here. Can I have your return of appliances, please? One heavy unit, three trailer pumps, and one heavy unit off the run shortage of riders. Thank you. B station, sub. One heavy unit. Three trailer pumps and one heavy unit off the run shortage of riders. Right. Can I have return of your appliances, please? Two heavy units, one water unit, one ramp lorry. Thank you. Control here. Can I have the return of your appliances, please? Two heavy units and two TPs. Thank you. And so maybe, Jason, this is just because, I mean, obviously we're not the audience that would have been watching this movie when it came out. But uh, me watching this, like, I don't know what a TP is. No. Other than toilet paper. No. And uh, it it actually wouldn't surprise me if the audience necessarily knew what a TP was. But that's not the point, right? This is showing how they operate and showing the lingo that they would use in that, you know, in the operation of that duty. Yeah. And and, (laughs) you said duty. (laughs) But I think I think yeah, and I think that's that, that's what I like. Again, I like that they don't stop for a second and be like, well, a TP is actually this, and then like yeah. this is this, and this is what we do every time there's a fire. Like there's none of that. It's like you're in the film. They give you a little bit of an in because yeah. you have this character Barrett, um, who thankfully is not as cruel as the Barrett in the, the Servant. No. Um, <laughs> no, this Barrett seems like a stand-up kind of fella. Yeah, and he's just like a new recruit, and we're kind of seeing some stuff through his eyes. But I mean, he knows he knows what he's doing. So we also don't. It's also not dumbed down where he's learning all these terms or anything. Like he's yeah. he's ready to go. He's ready to go. Yeah, 
Um, what, what I really liked about that scene you showed is is kind of the more interesting parts of the movie for me because the firefighting is cool and everything, but I do like seeing the shots of the women working in the office and like them manning the kind of communication center of it all and then having all the posters on the walls with the little dots that they stick up to know where people are and what they're doing. You know, This is all pre-computers, so people are having to do all this stuff manually. It's neat to see that, and I appreciate that movie giving us – or this movie giving us that window into that world. You know, because the firefighting is is certainly important, and it's a it, you know it, it's the sexy part, but it's it's the back end too that makes it all possible. And I'm glad we get know. to see that. I don't know, Jason. I think this is the sexy part. Well, those uniforms. All, all all these ladies on the phone. I mean, that's right. Well, you you know you know what a, you know, a lady on a phone does. Go on. She uses her mouth. <laughs> We're canceled. To, to talk. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> no, I think, I think that's really interesting is that you, you think in a movie in 1943, mm. uh, maybe wouldn't focus on this aspect so much. And I would argue they, they give almost half the film to this side of it, which yeah. is really interesting that they, Humphrey Jennings kind of pays, tri- pays respect to the, the women because they work j- just as hard as the men yeah. in their, in like, you know, their occupation. Um, I, I mean, we even have a bit later on where there's a fucking explosion right outside the building. One of the women goes down, the line is broken and you know, she just gets up blood on her forehead, clicks the receiver a few times, picks up that signal again and carries on. Yeah, exactly. Stiff upper lip. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's like they really, they really pay tribute to, uh, to every aspect of this, which is interesting. Yes. It's almost like, uh, I want to say like it, it, and we're saying this is a propaganda film, obviously. Yes. But I want to say it's like it's like it feels a lot more fleshed out than a propaganda movie would normally be. Like I feel like if this was just about the fire service, it'd be like, oh, our brave firemen fighting yeah. the fires. Look at them go, they're so brave. And we'd probably ignore all the like clerical behind the scenes stuff. Yeah, exactly. It would be like a, a typical newsreel kind of thing, you know, that would we, get a few points across and it probably wouldn't be more than five or ten minutes long. But this 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 is an actual film like, you know, it's a beginning, middle and end and, and there's kind of an arc to it. Um, so it's a little different than most propaganda films in that way. It's really interesting, too, because that's what they wanted. Right. That's what yeah. they wanted at first is they wanted just like a straightforward, the great firefighters, you know, that kind yeah. of newsreel propaganda film. But Humphrey Jennings wanted to do something else. Which is also interesting because uh, perceptions of him early in his career was that people kind of saw him like his colleagues and stuff. They kind of saw him as a guy who took like a casual interest in the arts, but like n- not enough. It kind of drew people away that they were like, oh, this guy wants to make movies as a hobby. Yeah. Not not like he's not really like into the world of film. He's kind of like Jason. If I could if I could use an analogy here, he's kind of like the Brock Lesnar of filmmaking. Wow. Was he German suplexing fucking producers, and that's why nobody wanted to work with him? No, I just mean because people think that Brock Lesnar is not really uh, doesn't get really give a shit about wrestling. Well, he doesn't really seem to. No, he doesn't. <laughs> Except for well, I mean, real wrestling he would give a shit about, like like amateur wrestling, because he would have to win. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but Humphrey Jennings, I mean, he had a kind of a crazy life. He this is his only feature film, by the way. Hmm. Um, sixty and yes, sixty-four minutes long. Originally seventy-five, uh, seventy minutes, but he cut it down to sixty-four because they said it was too long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, those were the days. <laughs> uh, he um, and he actually he actually died at a very young age. He died in nineteen fifty, so he was only like forty-three years old when he passed away. Damn. And the crazy thing about it is, like, he died. So they were in Greece. And they were scouting, basically, he was going to make a, a, a film about Europe's uh, kind of failing healthcare system. And he was on the cliffs in Poros, Greece, and he tripped and he fell off the cliffs. Damn, what a way to go. Ah. So, I mean, and this is a guy, people never, it's it's a shame because people never really got to see, like, what he could do. Because apparently he was he was going to do, he was on board for doing an adaptation of uh, Far From the Madding Crowd. Yeah. which is on this list directed by someone else and a couple other things that he wanted to make as like feature films, but he never got to do it. And I think, um, it, interestingly, I think it's, it also stuttered a little bit because he was a painter first and foremost. Mm. And he was, a he, it, the quote is he was a painter by inclination and a filmmaker by necessity. 
<laughs> and he only started he only began working for the um I guess for the government, for the crown, after he exhausted the annuity on which he had been living while trying to make an artistic breakthrough. <laughs> so he became a filmmaker to make a living. Wow. <laughs> that's, a crazy, that's a crazy idea, right? It's like, well, shit, this, this art stuff's not paying anymore. I guess I better take a real job. Better yeah, go make a movie. <laughs> I, I, I want to I make some real money. Maybe I'll start writing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, it says a lot about the work he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> One movie I kept thinking of while watching this, and I'm not sure why, because, I mean, maybe there's some similarities, obviously, in terms of, like, the characters and everything, but yeah. I kept thinking about Ladder 49. Ladder 49. That's, that's John Travolta. No, that's Backdraft. Yep. Th- oh, it no, is John Travolta? John Travolta, Joaquin Phoenix movie. Right. Kurt Russell is in Backdraft. Right. Exactly. I, no, I wasn't thinking about Backdraft. There was no arsonist. <laughs> I have not seen Ladder 49, so I can't make that uh, connection. Well, there goes 25 minutes of our podcast, Jason. <laughs> no, I kept thinking of Ladder 49 because, like, I, I mean, I don't I don't know. I don't think that movie's that great. But it's doing the same kind of thing where in this movie we have a lot of camaraderie yeah. being shown between the boys and, and the women. And that's another part, too, where I found it. They kind of avoid the, the stiff upper lip newsreel propaganda-ness yeah. of it all. And I'll play an example here is where they're all getting ready for service or for the, you know, for their shifts or whatever. And uh, Barrett starts singing a song that is a little dark, if you think about it, as each man enters the room. They went to mow a meadow. Two men, one man, and his dog. Went to mow a meadow. Three men went to mow. They went to mow a meadow. Three men, two men, one man, and his dog. Went to mow a meadow. reason i let that go on so long is because they play a different melody for each firefighter that comes into the station i I love that they play like the boom 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 for like the commander yeah that's very (laughs) nice now does mo now do you does moa meadow mean like go be buried in a grave or something Uh, is that why it's dark i think it has connotations about that yeah british people let us know i'm looking it up right now we're going to find out here, Jason. All right. Well, I guess Google exists, right? <laughs> mow a meadow phrase. All right. Let's see. To mow a meadow definition. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, it's just the definition of a meadow. Well, we know that. It's an old children's song. I know that. So probably like most old children's songs, it's got <laughs> a very dark connotation. Oh, probably. No, I, I mean, I got the sense that it was like basically sending them off to their possible death. Yeah. Like Every one night. after the other. Yeah, it it was very um it was it was it just it was jovial but it was also kind of uh, kind of dark at the same time and yes. actually so the actor I mean the firefighter who plays Barrett who's performing yeah. there on the piano um they came up with that about five minutes before the the camera rolled huh <laughs> because they wanted to do uh th- this movie had no script apparently huh. according to William Sansom. 
And they saw the piano and he could play piano. And he said, well, you want me to perform something? So they came up with this little Moa Meadow moment here about five minutes before they filmed the scene. Um, I, would, I would say this is probably in, in I mean, I don't know much about uh, the impact of this movie, but I feel like that's probably one of the more iconic moments of this movie is that scene, and at least in my mind. Yeah, well, and, and since we're talking about music, um, if you don't mind, Jason, I would like to play one other musical moment in this movie sure. because it's kind of a similar thing, a much darker, a much darker feeling, though, when you when you listen to it or when you see it. But it's when they're slowly. So they're in the station. They're all there. And so when they're slowly being called away to deal with, you know, the fires that are going on. Yeah. And uh, this this really hit me. I think this was a pretty powerful moment here. So that I was going to say that scene is um, reinforcing kind of the whole point of this propaganda movie. It's it's showing these people ready to do their duty. But at the same time, and even in the face of that, even with bombs going off around them and the constant drone of the Luftwaffe overhead, they, they keep singing and smiling and, and joking with each other. And, and, you know, it's reinforcing that attitude that they want the people to have. They want them to, to stay happy, stay focused keep the morale up and win this fucking war and that's what this whole movie's about and it's shown right here in this scene but yeah it's also dark too as you say because they're singing don't talk about me when i'm gone as they're getting ready to go out and fight fires and possibly die yeah and i mean like you said there's literally bombs going on around them i mean i know people you guys listening can't see it but uh, while the bomb the bombs are going off and literally it's close enough that a picture frame on the wall actually falls down mm, yeah so, I mean, it's right outside, and they make a little joke like, whoa, hope it doesn't get that close anymore. Please close don't like talk about <laughs> Sorry, what were you going to say? I was going to say, he just he just said, that's as close as I need it to be, or that's that's as close as I'd like it to be, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I want to do a real little section uh, uh, William Sansom wrote about Humphrey Jennings. All right. About this movie. Uh, he says the film was begun in a bleak month early in 1943. It was carried through into high summer. It was begun. It was begun on location among the cobbles and bricks and rafters and ruins of London Dockland by then badly bombed and finished at Pinewood Studios with green country all around. My actor colleagues and I were chosen from different stations all about London. None of us professional players and seconded from firefighting duties for the period. It was a dull lull period with little bombing, so this was something to do. We were all glad to be away from station routine, all rebellious that we were not paid extra for these expert duties. Uh, 
Uh, Humphrey thus had to deal with an enthusiastic lot who had a convenient grudge ready whenever necessary, ideal constituents of the British temper. He dealt well. Democracy the rule, Christian names all around, discussions and beer together after work. He gave us the sense of making the film with instead of for him. No script. A general scheme, of course, which we did not know about. Uh, the film was shot both on and off the cuff. Dialogue was always made up on the spot. And, of course, the more genuine for that. And Jennings collected detail of all kinds on the way, on the day, on the spot. See, that's another thing. The, the You say Clint Eastwood probably wrote a script or, or they had a script oh, for that movie. Yeah, right? 100%. 100%. Uh, by, by not having a script and by just letting these firefighters – say the things they would say while working yeah that that gets by a lot of that um you know that problem of having non-professional actors you just let them do what they do and they seem to do it pretty well in this movie well and i think the thing about clint eastwood too is that i don't think i think oftentimes he doesn't write his own scripts mm. i think a lot of times he directs other people's scripts yeah. um I obviously you can tell just by watching through his filmography, he puts his little flourishes on stuff. It has a, it usually has a certain political bend, um, especially as you get later in years. But yeah, I, I mean, I think, yeah, he's not, uh, it's a little, it's a little, it's a little different, a little different, yeah. a little different style. <laughs> Humphrey Jennings wrote a poem and uh, a lot of people said, actually, uh, it's funny, Lindsay Anderson, I think we talked about him already. I think we talked about him because he direct yeah he directed uh this sporting life mm -hmm. and he said that uh humphrey jennings was one of the few true poets in britain over mm -hmm. the years he really liked him and uh humphrey jennings has a poem here and i will preface this by saying this was written at, in a different time so yeah. there might be a couple words here and there that maybe don't fly as well fly so much these days so i apologize in advance but this uh poem um was kind of uh, kind of encapsulated, I guess, Humphrey Jennings' view on things and and how he did how he went about his work. Hmm. I see a thousand strange sights in the streets of London. I see the clock on Bow Church burning in daytime. I see a one-legged man crossing the fire on crutches. I see three Negroes and a woman with white face powder reading music at half past three in the morning. I see an ambulance girl with her arms full of roses. I see the burnt drums of the Philharmonic. I see the green leaves of Lincolnshire carried through London on the wrecked body of an aircraft. So he's yeah. very observant. Yeah. Very he's, good. he's always he's always observing the world around him, which is That's an uh, evocative poem too. That uh, that kind of yeah. puts you. And Jason isn't it, now if I remember correctly, the fire that they're trying to put out isn't it the the deal that it's close to like an ammunition ship or something? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a the, the yeah exactly. There it's near the harbor and either on a ship or in another building or even maybe in the building itself. There are I actually I think even in the building they're fighting. Uh, there are explosives because at one point the building does explode mm -hmm. uh, near the end of the movie. But yeah, that's the big problem is that they've got that. So that's why at some point they also call in a fireboat to come in from the harbor and provide them with some extra support and putting this thing out. And this is where the real propaganda about the National Fire Service comes in because the big I think there's a big criticism in this movie that all this stuff happens too slowly. Uh, in the movie? Yeah, because they they call in the reinforcements and they have that little discussion where they come in finally in the yeah. last ten minutes and say, "Oh, we we were sixty miles away." Mm. And I think the whole thing with this movie is that at the beginning it's established that you know in nineteen forty forty one the system was a bit of a mess, and yeah. thankfully we have this national fire service now. So I think oh, so, that so you're thinking this is part of the attempt to recruit more people into the fire service. I think so, and I think it's yeah. just a criticism of like maybe the uh, disorganized um, nature of it before that. Yeah, I guess that, that yeah, exactly. Is that this the auxiliary fire service was kind of a was a, a secondary organization that was made in addition to the already existing fire departments, right? So the I have to imagine part of the reason that they eventually went to a unified national fire service was so that they could better communicate and 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 send people where they were needed. So yeah, I imagine that was part of a problem, part of the problem early on. I do think um, the the music in this is really interesting. There's like a there's like a there's a moment where they're all arriving to work. It's like right near the beginning of the movie, and somebody's playing like a flute. Yes. And at first, I thought that that music was just like part of the movie. And then old Humphrey Jennings, I guess, was proto Scorsese because we pan over and this guy is just playing the flute. 
Yep. <laughs> and apparently, just to add to the kind of spontaneous nature of the movie, they just found that guy and they were like, hey, do you want to be in the movie? Yeah, well, of course I do. So, yeah, the, 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 that's also legit. I mean, he probably was realistically standing out there playing a flute just to entertain people and keep spirits up. And, yeah, that's exactly what he's doing there. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. They, they, they use something so like just found and uh naturally integrated into the movie because it doesn't feel weird that this is happening like you said it's just a guy playing a flute yeah. probably entertaining passers-by but it's also it also s- sounds a bit like a funeral dirge like yeah it's it's a little it's a little melancholy because they know what they're going off to they know that this could be it but don't you think too that that's like that's like almost like a documentary thing to do is just as you're shooting things you might be you might have a plan for the day and then you might see something and be like, oh, shit, we can use that. That's that's a that's a whole other thing that to add to our movie. Yeah, exactly. I, I do have one question that I, yeah, I, okay. I, Ask I questioned the um, authenticity of this. Would a sunken barge have a sign that says sunken barge? That's a real good question. Well, maybe if it had been there for a while, somebody had thought, well, I better put a sign on it. Okay, because so – because to me, it's like, I don't know, it just seemed like if the ocean had a sign that said ocean. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe you know, like the sunken barge was probably something that would be an issue, but they couldn't deal with it because they were too busy, you know, moving ammo and fighting fires and doing all the things the Britons were doing in, in London in 1941 and trying not to die. Maybe they just didn't have time to pull that barge out of the harbor. So they put a sign on it just to be like, hey, sunken barge. Well, and the sunken barge is, um, uh, oh, my God, what's Chekhov's sunken barge. Yeah. Because we're introduced <laughs> exactly. to it. <laughs> we're introduced to it early, and then it goes off at the end of the movie. Yeah, they use it to put the fire out. We haven't really talked a lot about the firefighting uh, aspect of the movie, because I think yes. the first the first 30 minutes is just so interesting, the way they set it up. And, you know, the stuff with the, the female operators is so great. And I think the firefighting itself, like you said, is kind of secondary. Yeah. I mean, it, it, we exactly. It, it's more about establishing that, I, I guess showing off the the procedure of how this all is pulled off. And then the firefighting, yeah, the firefighting is secondary, but it does come into it, and it is a big part of the back half of the movie. Um, and it is cool to see because they're using such primitive equipment compared to what we have nowadays. Mm. It blows my mind. Like these guys going into these fires, and they're wearing ru- like rubber waders, like <laughs> these heavy wool like uniform coats, and uh, uh, just – tin pot helmets no masks no breathers like uh, you know i mean obviously that stuff wasn't available at that time didn't really exist but man ballsy going into places like that like they they go up on top of a fucking burning building full of explosives to put the fire like they climb up the stairs and go up on top of the fucking building like <laughs> yeah it's it it really like i mean you see a movie like a modern firefighter movie and i mean no there's no question firefighters are brave i mean oh, yeah. now apparently they're just getting arrested for, for parking a millimeter over where they're supposed to be parking um <laughs> but but they're they're very they're obviously they're some of the bravest people we have awesome. um but watching the firefighters in this era you're like wow <laughs> like you are straight up walking into a death trap yeah i mean with, and that's with 40s technology you think because firefighting's been around for a very long time i mean going back to ancient roman stuff and and like it's amazing through all time it's been one of the craziest jobs that anybody has to do <laughs> but i think i think back in ancient rome it probably was involved a lot more sex stuff though right I would assume I, either before, during, or after. I, I think yeah. they make it happen. But uh, oh, well, of course, in ancient Rome too, and this was a fact. Uh, firefighting was like a private service, so mm. you had to like pay an insurance fee to a firefighting company and put a badge on your house. And so, if it caught fire, they would come and put it out. And uh, famously, it was. Have you ever heard the phrase "rich as Crassus"? No. Well, Crassus was a, a Roman who was one of the richest people that's ever lived, and the reason he was one of the richest people that ever lived was because he ran a number of fire departments, and what they would do is if a building caught fire and it wasn't one that was insured by them, they would all show up and be like, uh, we'll put your fire out if you sell us your house. <laughs> wow. Or if you just – yeah, exactly. And yeah, so they do, and then essentially he is now their landlord. And yeah, that made him a lot of money. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like something Jared Kushner would do nowadays. Yeah, no, absolutely. The idea of a private fire uh, force in modern times is is just evil. 
the idea of that being privatized, but we have people in power these days that would happily do that if they were allowed to. I was going to say, it's a, it's a scary thing to think like, wow, that would be crazy. Oh, it could happen. It could happen. Anything is possible, Brendan. We know that now. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> anyway, the horrible world. Let's move yep. on. <laughs> yep. Back to 1943 when we knew who the bad guy was clearly and defined. Yeah, Nazis and flames. That's right. <laughs> we do we do lose one of our boys too in this movie. Yeah. Um and again, this is another kind of latter 49 moment for me because mm. we, we the way they cut to like the the firefighters holding the coffin, uh we lose uh Jacko by the way because Jacko yes. is on top of the building and he um he helps to get one of the injured firefighters down. But he lets go of the rope, meaning they can't come back up and grab him yeah. uh, because he knows it, it's not going to work. Like it's they're not going to be able to, to get that guy down, come back up and get him like there's not enough time mm. um, or, or enough, you know, resources. But, uh, yeah, so the funeral itself, it, it the way they kind of appear and the way they're holding him, the way they walk, it, it's it echoes it, man. It's like almost identical to the funeral scene in Ladder 49. Spoiler alert. So I, I would assume that whoever made Ladder 49 had probably seen this movie. I mean, they have. I they would have to. <laughs> I feel like this is a movie that like is known more among filmmakers than you know a general public, unless you know you were alive back then or you're a big uh, uh, or or you or you live in Britain and you know like you know you've done tons of research about World War II and cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like the general public doesn't have a huge awareness of this movie well i can say i've never i'd literally never heard of it until you rolled the rolled the dice so yeah no me neither i I remember seeing it on the list and knowing vaguely that i thought it was like a documentary sort of yeah um so i was kind of i was looking forward to this uh to this one just as a just as a a stark difference to everything we've talked about yeah yeah, I just absolutely. think I, I, yeah, like like just so different from everything on this list. Yeah, <laughs> um, just the idea of a docudrama and, and, and of course, 1943. I mean, I don't know whether that had really been done at that point. I mean, surely somebody had made movies that were like dramatizations of real stuff. But a lot of times they were probably just passed off as documentaries. <laughs> so I wonder how many actual like things that were considered docudramas were made and were known to be docudramas and not just something like Nanook of the North, you know, with I was states say, yeah. and whatever. Yeah, I was going to say Nanook of the North, which was later proved to be mostly staged. Staged, but also, you know, it, it is based based on reality, but yeah, staged. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I guess I can answer that by saying, I, I guess Humphrey Jennings made stuff like that, but they were, like, again, they were all, um, they were all essentially shorts. Yeah. Um, before this and and only this is his only feature um he did uh maybe vaguely controversially make a move make a, a short about post-war germany hmm. um which a few people were kind of iffy on but yeah. so he did do that but i mean gotta make your paycheck i guess that's right man's gonna make money but yeah i don't know this is this is uh there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on here what, what do you um what do you think? You got any other uh, bits you want to add? Bit, what is I, it called? Bits and bobs. Bits and bobs. Bits and bobs. Well, uh, I'll go through some bits and bobs and I'll give you an overall on this thing. Um, I, I liked it. Uh, it, it from the from the start, we know it's a propaganda film because it's uh, the Crown Film Unit. So yes, yes. And don't <laughs> right they say up. like in full cooperation? Yeah, yeah, full yeah. cooperation with the government. Um, I like, and I wonder if he was just hanging out there because everybody, every single person in this movie is a white person, except for one random Asian dude in the very beginning that Barrett asked for directions to the fire station. And he's just like, yeah, it's down around the corner on the right. So I wonder if that guy was just standing on the street and they're like, we'll put him in the movie based on everything else we've talked about. That seems pretty, pretty, uh, reasonable. I, I, I think, I think you're onto something. Yeah. Um, let's see. I like that shot early on of two ladders that are kind of like in a in a point they kind of come to a point on the screen and it cuts to the clock that is in the middle of the screen mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a nice transition um, a lot of good wartime london shots especially of the harbor in this movie you know getting a sense of kind of the activity and, and what's going on uh i feel like every british war movie we'll ever watch has singing in it at some point so, i think so i think i think it has to so it was good to uh good to do that that's, I think that's the war movie version, the British war movie version of the Bechdel test. Yeah, exactly. Has it got singing in it? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> no singing in it? I'm sorry, damn busters. 
the lighting in this movie is really good and they were they, either they put out a real fire or they were really detailed because when they go and put that when they first turn the water on to the fire and the water hits the fire we get the steam from the water and it totally changes the lighting immediately of the scene so mm-hmm. good on them <laughs> either for just putting out a real fire or for having that kind of detail because it looked great can um, i ask you one question before you uh, sure. read your next thing um <clears throat> Am I crazy or did the beginning of this movie where everybody's like kind of individually getting ready to go to work and everything, did it kind of remind you of like the full Monty or Brast off? Yeah, a little bit, I guess, now that you mentioned it. I hadn't thought of it at the time, but yeah, absolutely. Where these guys, you know, they're kind of comrades in arms and they're going to do their job and everything, getting ready for work. Yeah, I, I could see that. I mean, obviously, le- I mean, obviously, almost no time spent on their home life. I mean, we do yeah. see that Jacko is told before he leaves not to do anything stupid. Mm. Um, and then he ends up being the one, of course, that sacrifices himself. But uh, yeah, no, I just I brassed off for sure. I just thought I thought of that the whole time. I was like, oh, wow. I wonder if like that was like one of the first movies to do even that sort of uh, that sort of opening to a movie. Yeah. Anyway, I just want to mention that. Another moment that that really hits you is right near the end where they've kind of they put the fire out and everything and there's kind of a minute of quiet and then the air raid sirens go off again and it's yeah. like here we go again fellas. Uh, <laughs> another moment that actually now my my wife's father uh, Dan he's a lovely man he's been a uh, from for much of his life has been a volunteer firefighter and the moment that kind of stood out to her that she commented on was when the canteen comes in. Because uh, after the fire and everything, and then this mobile canteen truck pulls up and has food and stuff for the boys. And, you know, growing up, she said that was almost – it wasn't necessarily a truck, but, like, after every fire, the fire, volunteer firefighters would come back and the, and, the, and the ladies from the community would all have sandwiches and, and drinks and stuff and, and food all for them afterwards so that they could, you know, get a meal and recharge. Hmm. So that, that rang really true. Now, now – an overall in this thing I got to talk about briefly is that uh, this is an incredibly procedural film. Yeah. This is, this is a movie that shows you how they fight fires uh, once they get into it. This movie is a propaganda film and it is a procedural film. And thus it is very straightforward. We, and we get almost no, like outside of like the singing and stuff, we get almost no insight into the personal characters of anybody in this movie. And honestly, it's for the better, given that, as we pointed out, none of these people are actors and and we don't want to go down that road and try to force them into doing something they don't want to do. But like this movie is very procedural and it it is a lovely tribute to the uh, to the people who, uh, you know, put their lives on the line every day. But I don't get the sense that this is a realistic movie, really. I mean, it is realistic because we see the procedure of it all. But like. The fact that everybody in this movie is 100% completely cool and collected and uh, uh, is doing their job exactly to the point, like, that seems a bit unrealistic to me. Like, I feel like if this movie were made today, if we were looking back at this era, there would be much more, like, emotion as far as, like, when the people are actually fighting the fire. Like, they're all very calm and collected, but, like, I feel like there'd be more shouting, there'd be a little more emotion, like, you know, go, no, no, over here, over here, move, 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 like, that kind of thing. Well, there's some of that stuff, I think. There's a little bit of it, but it's not it's not on an intensity level. And I think that's by design because this movie's point is to be like, look at the auxiliary fire service. We're venerating them for their service and we're providing an example to the British public in the middle of a war. This is how you conduct yourself. you got to be like the heroes of the fire service. Mm-hmm. And, uh, keep it together. So, I mean, overall, would you say that you liked it? Yeah, I, I like it conceptually. Okay. I, I don't know that it's particularly entertaining, but okay. it is um, – it's an interesting film to watch, and I feel like uh, – actually, thinking about it, I bet you the people that would know this movie are probably British students because I feel like this would have been an easy thing to to show in class as like um, something from the war. You know, you're talking about like the Blitz in London. You want to show people something to kind of give them a sense of what it might have been like in London. This would be the movie to show, especially because it's only 64 minutes long, so it could easily be watched you know, in, in a period in a, in a class. Mm-hmm. Well – I'm going to say I I feel similarly, but I think I liked it a little bit more. Um, mm. I didn't I didn't have any expectations going into this one, obviously. Oh, like I didn't <laughs> didn't know what was going to happen. I knew it was yeah. 64 minutes long. I was like, oh, is this going to somehow be a 64 minute movie that drags? But mm. I honestly I didn't feel like it did. 
And as soon as I figured out, you know, we spent 30 minutes getting ready and getting the camaraderie and getting a little bit of character, mm. um, get a little bit of character work and then getting to the fire um, for the last half of the movie, I was like, OK, this is going to be like a one night in the life of. Yeah. Um, so I did appreciate that aspect of it. Like if you're yeah. going to make a, a shorter movie, uh, concentrate on a, on a shorter period of time. I feel like a lot of Hollywood movies that are cut down like i don't know you see these weird like um like a fantastic four for example which might be a weird thing to bring up on an episode about a <laughs> about a 40s propaganda film for britain but um the, fa- the most recent fantastic four movie uh was but like their origin and you know them battling dr doom and it was a hundred minutes long and i'm like you can't have all that yeah. unless you pace it out properly because in that movie they don't really end the origin part of the story until about 80 minutes into the movie. <laughs> so that's insane to me. So for, for a movie like this, at 64 minutes to pace itself out like that is something yeah. I really appreciate and, so, oh, and yeah. to take on a rather simple story. Mm. Yeah. Um, no, they, so I'm not saying they should have necessarily tried to do more with it, no. but, but that's what they have. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And I respect it. And I mean, I, I think I think it's interesting because we have covered some movies you could argue are kind of procedural. I think Day of the Jackal could be called a procedural film yeah. in some respects. I think uh, a movie we haven't talked about, but I mean, All the President's Men can be considered yeah. um, a classic procedural film. I don't think it's a classic, but I think it's I think it's good. I think it's well made. I think it's a beautiful movie yes, uh, to look at. Like, I think Humphrey Jennings is an artist. Uh and constructing this movie and i think it's so much of a like historical i think it has so much historical significance though that despite what you or i even think about this movie yeah. i think it deserves its place on the list and and it's good because it it gives a window into the the home front in the war in britain and i i, I feel like that often gets shafted in favor of the military end of it because that's you know that again that's the sexy part that's you know the fighting mm-hmm. in europe and all that shooting nazis everybody loves that stuff that's entertaining as hell but we yeah you know, we sometimes forget that there was still this these battles going on on the home front and, and we see it in this movie and we saw it actually in, in hope and glory as well yeah. Uh, and, and I'm glad we're getting a sense of that. It's good, good for us as people, Brendan, to know this stuff, but it's good for people that watch the movies on this list as well. Yeah. It just feels like a really well-rounded take on it. Yeah. Despite being like, I feel like this is, I feel like you tell someone to make a propaganda movie and mm-hmm. this is probably the best thing that they could do with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Rather than just being some, you know, just boosting of of the auxiliary fire service they actually made a piece of art in the process yeah i mean humphrey jennings could not just make a straightforward propaganda movie which to his credit um so i mean would you agree with me that it belongs on the list because of the because of that uh at least that significance of it yeah for sure for sure and i mean it's an important wartime movie i mean it's the same with you know be up there with henry v like just these movies that helped galvanize the british public's morale to win that thing yeah all right. Well, fires were started, Jason. We did it. They were. <laughs> they were, and they were put out with our love. Mm-hmm. So now you might have been not- you might have noticed, dear listener, that uh, we are not in the same room. We are not. But don't worry, we're not in lockdown. <laughs> oh. We just had to make uh, some rearrangements. Jason has some vacation coming up. Woohoo! He's very excited. Although, if you're hearing this, Jason is long back from vacation. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I had so much fun. Yeah. Oh, the the. Did you see any local sports teams? Oh, they were all playing. They were they were doing it in a distance manner. <laughs> well, now comes the time when we are going to roll the dice. And I figured, like, well, let's just roll the dice. I know when we were doing our remote episodes, we we used a little. A shifty website to pick a movie for us but i think jason i think we built enough trust that uh you'll let me roll the dice i will okay I and do you have do you have the bfi top 100 pulled up it is in front of me as we speak i'm ready to go all right so i'm gonna roll the tens d10 and the ones d10 or just a d10 we're gonna find out what movie on the BFI Top 100 we are going to cover next week. Very exciting. Here we go. Okay, we're in the 30s, Jason. I feel like we've covered a lot of these. All right. 30. 
All right, 31. I have Zulu. We've already watched it. Good movie. All right, good movie. Good movie. No, I'm going to do Zulu again. All right, we'll just do Zulu Dawn. Oh, we done that too. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> for fuck's sakes. All right, we're in the 30s again. 30. 30. 30. 30-30. Gregory's Girl, 1980. Bill Forsyth. Okay, the director of Local Hero. All right. That should be fun. We're do Gregory's Girl. All right. This is a early 80s British cinema. Let's do it. Let's let's roll into this. All right. Uh, we're rolling from a 64-minute movie into something that's th – I, I was real worried we were going to go from this to like a three-hour epic, so I'm yeah, really it's glad. Yeah, going to be Colonel Blimp. This one's 91, so in e we're easing I, back in. Yeah, yeah, that's what I, I want to do. That I don't want to go from from uh, a, a show something you could watch on television to something you could watch on TBS Superstation, but would take eight hours. Yes. Ah, Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it took all day to watch you, and I did watch the second viewing that started right after. Yeah, why not? You can catch the catch the parts you missed. That's right. All right, so that's what we'll talk about next week. We'll talk about Gregory's Girl, director Bill Forsyth. But until then, Jason, gotta tell people that they can follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at BFI underscore pod. You can find us by searching for us on Facebook uh, for Screen and Country. Uh, yeah, we're on Facebook. Just look for us. Yeah. We're there. We're out there. Um, we also have our for Screen and Country group for screen uh, that you can go and uh, and talk at us. Or, yeah. You know, yell at us. What I hear from you. You are also on Twitter, Jason. I am. Uh, you can find me there at Jason D. McLeod. That's M-A-C-L-E-O-D. Yep. It's uh, there's a lot of uh, photos of the time when Jason was an arsonist. <laughs> don't talk about that. I let the photos speak for themselves, man. Please don't talk about me while I'm gone. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so follow Jason, follow us. Uh, we're on all the podcatchers, obviously. Our home base is for screeningcountry.podbean.com, but you can find us anywhere. All classy podcatchers, as Jason likes to say. Absolutely. But until next week, for Gregory's Girl, Jason, I've got to say to you, God save the queen. God save the screen. For Screen and Country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. With gasoline. How can we sleep while the beds are burning? I'll tell you how. How? Gumption. Da 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 da. I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart. In my heart I have but one desire, and that one is you, no other will. I've lost all ambition for worldly acclaim. I just want to be the one you love. And with your admission that you feel the same, I'll have reached the goal I'm dreaming of. Believe me, I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart. So I was out with this girl the other night, and she said that she hated Star Wars. Can you believe that? I could top that. My latest date told me he didn't like black and white movies. What? Do you have a movie deal breaker? Is there a film you love so much that if your significant other didn't like it, it would be Splitsville? Well, we're dating hosts Greg and Lauren, and in our podcast, Movie Date Night, we introduce each other to our favorite movies and see if our relationship can survive. And if our partners appreciate the movies as much as we do. Find us wherever podcasts are available and follow us at Movie Date Night on Facebook or Twitter to talk movies with us. Hi guys, we interrupt your favorite podcast to 
interrupt you with an ad for your new favorite podcast. Wait, wait. Isn't this playing on somebody else's show? Exactly. So then how are we – I thought we were their new favorite podcast. Well, we're going to become their new favorite podcast after they hear this advertisement for our show. What's our show called, Justine? Superiority Complex. Yeah. Where can they find us, Patrick? Uh, Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, exactly. You can go to at Soup Complex on Twitter, S-O-U-P Complex, and you can go to Facebook.com slash Soup Complex. But our main page is on Podbean, and you can find us there at www.superioritycomplex.podbean.com. New episodes are out every Thursday. Justine, yes. what do we talk about on the Superiority Complex? Nerdy stuff. Perfect. Don't get all sensual with your voice. Yeah, did you hear that? I heard it. It's a little inappropriate. If you want to hear a little more of that, tune in to the Superiority Complex. One more time, Justine, what do we talk about? Nerdy stuff. Nah, wasn't no. the same. You tried. <laughs> <laughs>